Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. We have a great guest tonight. I've been looking forward to this show for uh, the last couple months. Um, leading cryptozoologist Ken Gerhard is our guest this evening. I've spent a couple afternoons with Ken at a couple Mothman festivals when he, Nick Redfern, and Lyle Blackburn are at the festival. They do make it the premier family festival in West Virginia and a leading attraction in the Ohio Valley. Ken has captivating presentations and is a very popular and is, and is very popular with the meet and greets and his tent author's tent is uh, pretty busy as well right there by the Mothman statue. Um, you frequently see Ken providing commentary on one episode of Ancient Aliens, River Monsters, uh, America Unearthed, In Search of Monsters, m many other History Channel show History Channel and Prometheus Entertainment shows. Uh, Ken and I will be discussing his new book, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot. It's a uh, terrific book. Go out and get it after the show. Uh, His Flying Humanoids is a fascinating book as well. And if we have a little bit of time towards the end of the first hour, we'll uh, touch on that. Uh, and keep an eye out for his new book on the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, you can learn more about Ken by going to his wet website, KenGerhard.com, uh, that's K-E-N-G-E-R-H-A-R-D.com, and Barbara has Ken's photo on her wall of fame at her new house. Hi, Ken, how are you? Hey, Mark. How are you doing, Barbara? You there as well? Yeah. It's, yeah we're, awesome. We're well, all here. You guys, 
I'm honored uh, to be on your show tonight, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you both. So thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Well, I'll, this is going to be an exciting show. And, um, now let's just start at the beginning. Um, how how did the Patterson-Gimlin film affect you when you first saw it? I, I think I probably had the same response you did, and a whole bunch of, of the listeners are probably are going to say, hey, you know, that's me too, when I was six or seven <laughs> years old. So that seems to be an early part of your book. So let's let's start with basically at the beginning. Yeah, well, um, I was eight years old, I think. It was about 1976, and uh, I always tell people that I, at, a, at an early age, I was already in love with uh, animals, creatures, monsters, you know, all that stuff. So uh, I, I hadn't heard about Bigfoot yet, though, until 1976, and I remember watching a TV show one morning on a Saturday. So I think it was in between commercials, and they did a a news story on Bigfoot, and they showed uh, a clip from the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film. I'm sure all of your listeners are familiar with it. It's the iconic footage from 1967 that shows this mm-hmm. creature striding across the uh, the creek into the into the woods. And, um, you know, I, I grew up kind of on monster movies, Godzilla and Planet of the Apes, and you name it. Yep. I loved all that stuff. That- that's so me my, too. Yeah. So my very first thought when I saw this thing walking was, "That's not a costume," and uh, that just kind of stuck with that stuck with me my whole life. That that you know I I knew what costumes looked like up until 1976, and this didn't look like a costume. It was uh, the the sort of the synthesis of movements and muscles and. The, the natural look of the hair and the, the, the form fitting. I mean, there's just so many elements to that film that if you really study it, uh, and granted, you know, the, the film originally was shot, you know, under duress. The guy's running towards the creature, Patterson, Roger Patterson. He's stumbling. He's camera shaking. It's very far away. So most of the shots of the film that you see nowadays on TV shows on the Internet have been enlarged. They've been enhanced and the enhancements continually get better. But anyways, there's a lot of detail you can see in that film. And so I was convinced it was a real creature, and it just blew my mind at a young age that, wow, there really could be this giant, hairy, man-like creature roaming around the woods of the United States. And uh, so that kind of set me on the path uh, on my search for unknown animals. Okay. And you know, in your book, you cover a lot of the information that can be gleaned from watching uh how, how long is the that video it's 30 seconds or something like that the film is about a minute oh man okay yeah and then, you know again the first few seconds you can't see much cuz Roger Patterson uh, and I talked about the whole story in the book it's been well documented but uh, when Patterson and Bob, his partner Bob Gimlin, rode up on this creature, they were on horseback. The horses started acting mm-hmm. up. Patterson right. kind of had this fell off his horse, or the horse was kind of, you know, falling backwards. And uh, he had prepared himself. Patterson was a pretty, 
he was pretty obsessed with the Bigfoot topic. He had the he had rented the camera to film a documentary and you know hopefully footprints. They never I don't know if they expected to actually ever see a creature. Um but when he uh fell off his horse, he started running to his credit. I don't know if a lot of people would do this, start running towards this Bigfoot creature with the camera. And uh, he was almost at the unfortunately he was almost at the end of his reel because he and Gimlin had been filming throughout that morning. So, uh, so he he got about a minute of film, and at some point he kind of stopped and stabilized himself uh, on his knees and kind of up against a, a fallen log, perhaps. And so that's the famous footage you see where it takes a few steps and turns and looks back at the camera. I say mm-hmm. it. We we refer to the subject as Patty. <laughs> we we know it's a female because she had breasts, and um, so that's that's kind of the iconic footage. And um, you know, a lot of people to this, it's controversial still, of course. After all these years, a lot of people think it's real. A lot of people think that it could be a hoax with someone wearing a costume. But you know, there's so many arguments that can be made against that that possibility. The the first one we talked about, it just doesn't look like a costume. Uh, but also, you know. Uh, Patterson and Gimlin, um, you know, they they found footprints. They cast those. You know, that was corroborating evidence. Gimlin, like many people in the Bigfoot field, I've known for 15 years. I've heard him talk about the encounter. Uh, Roger Patterson, of course, passed away in '72, unfortunately, but Gimlin's still around, and he talks about the the experience. He's pretty consistent in the way he tells it, and. Um, you know, he he was actually skeptical that these things even existed until he saw it with his own his own eyes and was like, "Wow, this, I can't believe this thing is it's really there." So, anyways, it's it's a pretty it's the most important photographic evidence that's ever been captured with regard to Bigfoot. Still controversial after fifty some years, but it did play an important part in influencing many young future Bigfoot researchers back in the 1970s that, 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 you know, like myself, that kind of, kind of got us on our way. So, you know, I, you know, they took, um, you know, casts of, you know, the footprints, you know, they're able to, researchers are able to kind of get a general idea of the weight, you know, you, you, know, you bring yeah. that up to mm-hmm. you know this female uh specimen that might not yeah, be the, the best word but yeah um, Patty, the the specimen no you're right they've been done they've done estimates on the height on the weight the motion has been analyzed the way it walks its locomotion has been carefully studied to to rule out you know that it could be a human in a costume um there was a study done a lot of people don't realize that you know, a lot of Western scientists first re- rejected the film when it first came out. Uh, they took it to the Smithsonian Institute. They took it to scientists in, in Canada. Um, everyone was kind of kid gloves. No one wanted to touch it or risk their reputation by getting involved with Bigfoot. Uh, but the film was eventually purchased by a guy named Rene DeHinden, who was a pretty passionate Bigfoot researcher in his own right. And uh, he ended up taking it to England and to Russia, and uh, he actually got scientists in, in both England and Russia to study the film, and the Russian academic scientists studied it for like a year and really did a, a comprehensive study on the film. So the film has been studied by physical anthropologists around the world, and uh, those academics that have taken the time to really look at the film carefully, 
most of them have come to the conclusion that it, that it has to be authentic. Okay, so let, let's stop there for the moment with, okay, let's look at everything in the one-minute film is uh, authentic. Um, in your book, you, you do uh, present fair evaluations of uh, Patterson and Bob Gimlin. Uh, you, know, you, know, you know, there's a photo of you and Bob in your book, page 74. Uh, they had what, a little bit of a falling out, but mm-hmm. yeah, you, know, you s- ar- argue that um, <clears throat> there isn't anything in the film to indicate that there's anything fake. Well, there are a few theories. One was that uh, Patterson and Gimlin pulled off a, a, a masterful hoax. Gimlin has never, like I said, strayed from his story that, that, that it was a real creature that they filmed. Uh, Patterson, it's true, did some shifty things, and I think that's one of the reasons that skeptics are, are doubtful. That, you know, For example, after uh, he went on tour with the film, he actually hired an actor to play Bob Gimlin, which Bob thought was pretty weird that he kind of got cut out of the, the whole deal originally. Um, but, you know, Patterson was dying, sadly, of, of, of a form of cancer. And uh, up until the early 1970s, and this is one of the things I argue in the book, is, you know, he was desperately trying to raise money for cancer treatments. And, uh, you know, he knew he was dying. And if the film were a hoax, if he had to hoax the film, why wouldn't he have at that time have revealed it to the world and capitalized on it that way since it wasn't making any money the other way? You know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> he was taking it around the Pacific Northwest and showing it to people. He wasn't making a lot of money doing it that way. So I think he could have potentially made a lot more money off of it, at least towards the end, by admitting it was a hoax. So that's one thing. Another thing is people think that maybe Patterson um, – I'm sorry, Patterson and Gimlin were both hoaxed, but – you know what are the odds that just some some you know they they went in a direction that day that no one was expecting, um, so, so someone would have had to have been you know known that they were going to be there, and also uh, as Peter Byrne uh, has pointed out, longtime Yeti Bigfoot researcher, he scouted that area out after the film was shot, and it it's actually you know if someone was wearing a costume, they ran a pretty big risk for a couple reasons. One, it was hunting season. So if you got a guy running around out there in a furry suit, he could get shot. Gimlin had a rifle too, by the way, so that was another risk. And also, the area is not that inaccessible, if you know, comparatively speaking, it's kind of wide open at that time. It was at least, and 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 you know, so I mean, there were a number of arguments as to why it wasn't a hoax. But I think it always comes back to the costume, and they just no one's been able to recreate that that costume. I mean, even in modern times, using high-tech, you know, modern special effects costumes and things, there there have been attempts to recreate it, and still nobody has been able to do that after 50-some years. Right. Uh, 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 Those are all 
point you make in in, in the book, um, you know, to show the authenticity of what was captured on the the film. So, you know, let's look at you know, some of the more uh, extensive evidence and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, after the film uh, you know, started to be you know, seen by some people and you know, talked about, uh, uh, it, you note that there became more Eastern appearances of mm-hmm. uh, Bigfoot. So you know, we're kind of getting into. Uh, the population has a, a greater awareness of such a uh, humanoid creature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, Bigfoot, um, you know, kind of appeared in the Pacific Northwest, started in British Columbia back in the 1920s. The Sasquatch was first kind of uh, got, got got notoriety, and then you know, Bigfoot uh, in 1958. Uh, Footprints were found in Bluff Creek, California, and uh, that's when the name Bigfoot was coined. And then the Patterson film in 67 kind of made Bigfoot a worldwide phenomenon and and brought awareness to an all-time high. And uh, corresponding to that, you had sightings suddenly coming out of eastern United States, places like Florida with the skunk ape, uh, Uh Texas, Arkansas, Ohio, Missouri, Michigan, New York, and um, so Bigfoot was being seen everywhere, and I, I, I think I equate that a lot to just public awareness, and people suddenly realized that, you know, that people that had had Bigfoot sightings were coming forward. Uh, you know, it wasn't there was a climate where where whereby people could come forward and and talk about their accounts without as much ridicule. Um, newspapers were kind of seizing on reports and sightings and publishing those. Um, so, I mean, if you go back in time, there are Bigfoot accounts that predate all of this in, in the eastern United States. You look at newspaper accounts from the 19th century and the early 20th century, the name Bigfoot, the name Sasquatch were not known. So a lot of times people would describe, quote unquote, wild men, hair covered wild men is what they called them. Or sometimes they had local names for them, boogers, apes. Some people called them gorillas because they looked very ape-like. So there were stories and even Native American traditions of things like Bigfoot in the eastern United States dating way back. But, uh, you know, the the newspapers, I think, played a, a large role in kind of raising public awareness starting uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, and throughout the 70s. So, um, so, yeah, and to this day, I mean, you still have the highest concentration of Bigfoot Sasquatch sightings are in the Pacific Northwest, places like California, Washington, Oregon, British Columbia, Alaska. But you do have a number of reports that continually uh, come out of places like Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, Michigan, Kentucky, Georgia, so on and so forth. So uh, Bigfoot uh, does seem to be, whatever the species is, it seems to be spread all across the continent. But it just in higher numbers on the, on the West Coast. Okay, so we have examples of 
numerous sightings, and you, you document quite a few in your book, but um, people are always looking for the remains of a Bigfoot. That 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 seems mm. to be one of those weak cases for you know Bigfoot is um yeah. so how how do we explain the lack of a burial yeah i think for the skeptic and um you know by the way about 18 to 22% these based on two recent surveys about 18 to 22% of the general population thinks that Bigfoot could actually exist. So the vast majority of people, understandably, <laughs> think that you know Bigfoot is just a colorful legend uh, and something entertaining that we can put on TV shows and in movies and stuff. Um, so the skeptics will argue and bring up, you know, why have we not found any remains, physical remains of these creatures if they exist, which is a very good argument. It seems like at this point somebody would have accidentally stumbled on remains or, or something like that. Um, there are accounts of that possibly happening, but still we don't have the remains. And that is the conclusive evidence that's needed to prove that Bigfoot exists. Even with the Patterson-Gimlin film, even with all the sightings and reports, even with all of the footprint evidence, you know, science will still not accept Bigfoot without a body or a part of a body. And that's understandable because it's a pretty remarkable prospect that these things actually do exist and that we we've never discovered them um so i encourage a lot of researchers these days to go out and look for remains i don't encourage anyone to go out and try to shoot one or harm one or harass one i don't i'm not saying that but i, I think that somewhere out there there have to be bones or whether they're buried or hidden in a cave or in some brush bones teeth the remains of these creatures if they exist they they do die from, from time to time and leave behind huge remains um, so that is a problem, and I understand why people are skeptical as to why that happened. has happened, and I think that also opens the door to a lot of these you know, people that are sort of uh, advocating supernatural or what we refer to as interdimensional Bigfoot, you know, that or, the reason we know. can't find Bigfoot is because they're not flesh and blood animals, they're interdimensional creatures that disappear through portals and things. So I don't necessarily advocate all of that. Um, I think Bigfoot is a real species, but this is how I explain it in the book, and there's a whole chapter dedicated to this explanation because it's so important. If we accept, as I do and many people that have been studying the, the situation for years and, and decades, that Bigfoot does exist, the only way to explain it is that it is an incredibly rare species, animal, something that's you know very, very, very rare, um, but, you know, with a viable breeding population, so we're probably talking low thousands spread across the continent. So they're very rare. But moreover, I think that Bigfoot has is intelligent enough and has adapted behavior patterns specifically to avoid human competition. So in other words, they recognize that we are their greatest threat, that we could drive them to extinction if we find them, uh, which is not as weird as it sounds because humans have driven most species <laughs> to extinction. I shouldn't laugh because I, I think it's tragic, but, uh, and humans drove other competing hominids to extinction, things like Neanderthals and Homo erectus and 
uh, Homo floresiensis and so on and so forth. So, so humans are the greatest threat. And if they're smart enough to recognize that, then they have adapted behaviors to avoid humans. So what are those behaviors? They choose to live in the most remote areas of wilderness that we typically don't go. They seem to be very nomadic, so they move around a lot, harder to find. And they seem to be largely nocturnal, so they move around at night when humans aren't awake. And uh, they, they seem to sense when humans are in the area for the most part. They're curious about us, but they don't want any contact with us. They move away. They hide. They're good at peeking from behind trees, um, hiding in the brush, remaining very still for long periods of time and camouflaging themselves. So that's my theory. And uh, I think supporting my theory, you have, uh, again, going back to the Patterson-Gimlin film, what does Patty do when these two guys ride up on horseback and start to film her? She walks away uh, uh, quickly yeah, yeah. into the woods. So, I mean, that's what I think. I think they're very intelligent. They don't want us to contact them. And they're very rare and very good at avoiding us. And that's the only way that I, I can think of that, you know, to explain why we haven't found the remains yet. And and they may also bury their dead too. You know, that's when they can. That's another theory that's out there. They may hide their remains when possible. Okay. Well, okay, so um we the moment we do not have a skeleton or tooth Mm-mm. thigh bone or you know, but you know, you also do, do note that there have been odd structures yeah. found in the woods. You know, we covered that ideas like that on last week's show, where mm. some of these uh, stone ceremonial centers that are now out in the middle of the woods may have been like a native. Um, you know, like church that was kind of, you know, on the main road between, you know, a, you know, a cu- couple destinations. So, you know, uh, long drives on an ATV out to a stone ceremonial place, um, you know, can get people out in the woods but you know what are some of these unusual structures that people are finding you know, d- deep in the woods yeah there are artifacts that have been found that are associated with bigfoot because they're typically found in active areas where a lot of bigfoot sightings have been documented i've personally found some of these um i found um on a couple of occasions, kind of primitive hut-like structures. I wouldn't say a hut, but more like a lean-to or kind of a, uh, an, a a teepee or a structure where something has woven a bunch of young saplings together and covered it with grass. So something too primitive, I think, for a human to use. But uh, those have been found. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, possible nests have been found in certain areas that look like large gorilla nests. You know, just basically a lot of brush put together, gathered up on the ground. And then there are these weird kind of crisscross structures that are found where trees are moved, small trees are moved and placed in the forks of other trees in crisscross patterns, uh, in the branches of other trees. 
and uh, they're really kind of bizarre looking, you know, and, and there's not a lot of direct evidence connecting these to Bigfoot because no one's ever seen Bigfoot making one, but they are found in areas where, where there's a lot of Bigfoot activity, and some of them are highly unusual and seem like they would take a lot of strength when you see the size of these trees that are kind of put together. Now, some of these could also be accidental, you know, things were brush, things have just coincidentally fallen into the right position, but if you looked at enough of these, they're, they're definitely odd enough. Glyphs, I think, is another word people use, because kind of a... Uh, reference to Native American-type structures or, or artifacts. Um, stone stacks have been found that, you know, were large, really heavy river stones have been carried long distances and put together in stacks in the middle of the woods. So, so there's a lot of kind of interesting circumstantial evidence that's been found uh, mm -hmm. that, that many researchers associate with Bigfoot. Um, but again, can't, we can't definitively say that Bigfoot is responsible for all of these since we have no direct evidence or observation of this happening. Well, you know, you, you're talking about, you know, these, like, lean-to type structures. Uh, you know, they might not be all that sophisticated, but, you know, maybe they're so deep in the woods that, yeah, uh, kids aren't going to be going, you know, hiking that far into the woods. Uh, some might not have the strength, you know, like you were saying, with the, uh, you know, working high up in the trees or like bending some of the larger trees. I, you know, you, you just don't see kids trees, leaving. Trees, in, sorry, trees snapped off. I should also I forgot yeah, to talk about that. You know, trees. Small trees snapped at the top, you know, eight, yeah. ten feet off the ground. I mean, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I mean, like, and today's kids aren't going to put down their Xbox to go that far into the <laughs> woods, anyways. So, 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 you know, we're back to what is this? Yeah, it's just more circumstantial evidence. It is, and I'll say I'll reference the very first hut-like structure that I ever found uh, was in an area called the Big Thicket in East Texas, and the Big Thicket is a very thick, piney, wood wooded area that is literally teeming with water moccasins, copperheads, and rattlesnakes. So, when you looked inside of this structure, it is not somebody that something that a person I think would have gotten into because. You know, the, there was no, there was nothing laid down in terms of, you know, uh, no structure or, or no tarp or anything to protect the, you know. So it was basically it was it was a haven for for venomous snakes could have crawled in there and through that thing at will. So I, I, again, to me, that didn't seem like something that a hunter would have made or, or you know, a fort that kids would have put together. At least smart kids, because you know, it would have been very dangerous to do so. So. Okay. What? And can you all? And a few minutes ago, you mentioned the uh, skunk ape. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a southern swamp cousin of Bigfoot. It, it, so, and we you know, spend a little bit of time talking about the. 
various uh, species. So what what are you finding in your research about the di difference between paddy and the skunk ape? Well, I, you know, I, I tend to view all of these Bigfoot creatures across the continent as the same species, except for a possible pygmy-sized version, which I refer to as Littlefoot, and I read about that in the book as well. Littlefoot uh, is yeah, much, we'll get to that. That's coming up. much smaller, only about three to five feet tall. But um, in Florida, the skunk ape, uh, which is, I, I think, a, a, just a Sasquatch, is reported as looking very similar in terms of, you know, walking upright like a man, very broad shoulders, hair covered, flat face, long arms. Um, as the name would indicate, it seems to be a little smellier than most of the, the Bigfoots that are reported around the country. Not much, but a little bit. Um, but maybe a little bit shorter. So, the, you know, the average height estimates for the skunk ape are like six, six and a half feet tall. Um, as opposed to the average Bigfoot or Sasquatch of the Pacific Northwest, which is up just a little over seven and a half feet tall on average, based on estimates. So it's a little bit shorter, but basically the same thing, I think. And um, I think a slight size difference could be explained by, you know, adaptation and what we refer to in zoology as speciation. So the habitat is different. So over a long period of time, a population of Sasquatches in Florida might shrink down because you know they're they're moving they're having to move through lower brush and uh there's not a a, a real uh benefit there a survival benefit in terms of being taller so that's you know just a theory but i mean that's one way to explain it so bigfoots in the eastern us are you know bigfoots or sasquatches we use the name interchange the names interchangeably i think i think it's the same species all over but i just think in certain areas and regions maybe populations have due to long-time breeding and, and genetics, have maybe gotten a little bit shorter or maybe a little more aggressive if they have a smaller habitat, uh, things like that. So um, I don't think there's a lot of variation there in terms of, you know, I don't think you could refer to them as different species per se, maybe subspecies at most, uh, but uh, just slightly different versions or variations based on uh, the habitats and, and the genetic pools and things like that. Okay. Well, um, okay. You, know, you, you just brought up the subspecies. Uh, uh, what about the yeti? That seems somehow related. Yeah, the yeti. Everyone has heard of the yeti or the abominable snowman of the Himalaya uh, range of Asia. Um, those sightings date back, you know, again to the 19th century and. Yeti really became popular in the 1920s and later in the 1950s. Um, there seem to be possibly different types of Yetis. And uh, one might be our, similar to our Bigfoot or our Sasquatch, uh, reported as being, you know, maybe six, seven feet tall. And that's referred to as the Mete or Mete. Uh, there's also a larger type known as the Zute, which translates to bear man or hulking-like thing, and it's possible that that particular type of yeti is merely a reference to large brown bears uh, that are that are roaming around in the Himalaya. And then you have a smaller pygmy-sized version, a type of little foot that's described as only three to four to five feet tall that's very aggressive. 
And so I think there could potentially, in, in, in terms of the Yeti, there could be two different types of hominids, the Bigfoot type, the Littlefoot type, and then possibly, again, sightings of bears that are being called Yetis or lumped in to the Yeti category. So that that's what the evidence seems to indicate there. But most of the Yetis that are reported are actually the smaller type. Uh, those are the ones that um, you, you, get, you seem to get more reports and sightings of those, and uh, they seem to be more interactions with the local Sherpa people that live in that region. And um, some of the footprints that have been found uh, are smaller as well. You know, they're not the big Bigfoot-sized 15-, 16-, 18-inch tracks. They're they're about half that, that length, so. Okay. Okay, so in the first part of your book, get great information about Bigfoot, you know, uh, thorough analysis of um, what can be learned from uh, one minute of seeing Patty. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in the middle of your book, um, we have lots of documented information from the mainstream academics, college professors, uh, discovering Littlefoot. Mm. Okay, that's... There's no problem discussing, uh, you know, these, you know, like the Hobbit people. Uh, That's what they're called, the the, uh, Florences people. uh, There's... No hesitation whatsoever to say this was uh, you know, uh, hominid, you know, early human type species, but but we don't want to talk about the big. You know, that's that's really out there. You know, you know, we only stick with one uh, unusual type of humanoid uh, person. Well, you know, I think you, you really made some really good points about the authenticity of the Hobbit people. So I'll let you do your, your spiel on on that. Yeah, well, um, reports of little pygmy-sized Bigfoot-type creatures have been documented, you know, dating back to the 1950s and uh, – an early cryptozoologist named Ivan T. Sanderson wrote about these these little little pygmy size, what he called proto pygmies, and uh, he got a lot of these reports from different native people. Um, starting in 2004, I mounted two expeditions to the Central American country of Belize, where there's a little foot creature known as the duende, uh, which uh, we went out there and looked for evidence of these because there have been reports there in the Maya Mountains, but. What I've found through the years, Mark, talking to different Native American people from Alaska to the Dakotas to the eastern Atlantic coast, different Native American cultures, when you talk to a lot of the the Native, the indigenous people, and ask them about Bigfoot, they'll often mention these little pygmy-sized versions as well. So it's interesting to me that it seems to be something that's that's well-known to the Native American 
people, but uh, not necessarily known outside of those circles. But they, they're actually more afraid, more terrified of these littlefoot creatures than Bigfoot. And they describe them as standing about three to five feet tall. Like Bigfoot, it walks on its hind legs, covered in hair, but very man-like form, stocky and powerful, uh, pointy ears, sharp claws and teeth, pot bellies, usually a reddish color to the fur. So those are all very consistent things that are described. And they seem to be highly aggressive and malevolent, if you will. And there are a number of Native American names for them. Uh, Anukins, Jinxiox, uh, Awakule, Nerumbi, Hechesitehi, Mamaguese, I mean, Duende. So, I mean, they're all over the place. But... Um, they they seem to be similar to Bigfoot. I guess it might be a subspecies that's basically a pygmy-sized form. But what I talk about in the book is that I think you could actually make a strong case to relate them to, as you mentioned, the hobbit people or Homo floresiensis, which was a species which was discovered on an Indonesian isle. Fossils were discovered, I should say, on an Indonesian isle back in 2003. And uh, mm-hmm. these fossils are, are, you know, they basically based on the reconstructions of these these tiny people. They were not human. They were not Homo sapiens. They were somewhere earlier in the evolutionary tree, and perhaps very similar to a species called Homo habilis, which came out of Africa about 1.8 million years ago and was one of the first, if not the first species in the Homo line. Um, so that's kind of my, my my thinking is that you know based on the most recent dating, uh, they think that Homo floresiensis may have been around as recently as fifty thousand years ago, um, mm-hmm. and basically at a time when humans, Homo sapiens, were living on that same island or in that same region. Now, to some of your listeners that aren't familiar with the the geologic time scale and evolutionary time scale, fifty thousand years may not sound like a may sound like a long time, but it's really not. It's very recent, actually, um, you know, because you've got the human evolution dates back six or seven million years, and then you had a big jump about two million years ago with, with a lot of species in Africa and Asia migrating into Asia. So the fact it's a non-human species, uh, pygmy-sized, possibly hairy, was living, you know, alongside humans 50,000 years ago, I think that you could make a very strong argument that it's possible that there are pockets of these of this particular species still around. And that would certainly explain uh, the modern sightings and accounts of these littlefoot creatures. Yeah, I, I, that, um, that's on page 147. It, it, it's really, uh, that's actually a, a fascinating subject. And I think he did a excellent job on uh, that part of your book, you know, like the middle section of your book. Well, thanks. I, th- I, I think just it's, just an, it's an overlooked, and it's kind of a, a yeah. pun or a play on words when you talk about the fact that they're very small. They're overlooked. <laughs> Aspect of the Bigfoot phenomenon are these little pygmy-sized versions. Yeah, but it's you know what? Why? Why are we have belief in them? And you know, maybe that's where we get you know the concept of leprechauns. But you know, mm-hmm. Bigfoot is woo woo. 
I, it's, um, I, I was really uh, impressed with that section. And it's, so, you know, maybe an uh, ass of your stellar career that people may not realize is that you are a volunteer at the San Antonio Zoo. So how does that uh, job fit in with your study of cryptids? Uh, Yeah, well, thanks for mentioning that. So um, I'm a docent at the San Antonio Zoo. I've been there for uh, about five years now. Um, a docent is basically a volunteer educator that interprets exhibits and different things for for the guests. And um, my first attraction to the San Antonio Zoo, other than the fact that I just love zoos and love animals, was the fact that the San Antonio Zoo sponsored the very first one of the very first expeditions to search for the Yeti back in 1957. A lot of people don't realize this. So it was one of the first zoos, if not the only zoo, that's ever searched for the Yeti or a relic hominid going back to the 1950s. So the San Antonio Zoo already has a long history with cryptids and cryptozoology. Um, since I've been there, it's been pretty cool. They've uh, The zoo has actually embraced what I do, and uh, you know they allow me to do talks and lectures to other docents, to some of the school groups that come through, the zoo camps. And uh, even this past October, they had a model of a chupacabra at the zoo, which they they still have it there, and kind of a fun legend here in Texas. And they had me give talks on on that and and how that pertains to cryptozoology. So uh, so the zoo has actually been very supportive of uh, you know kind of my eccentric sort of uh, pursuit of these unknown animals. And um, but you know the the real benefit for me has been just being at the zoo all the time and learning so much uh some really we have some very brilliant people at that zoo in terms of the animal care specialists the conservation specialists and so i've learned quite a bit about lots of different types of animals and um you know it's really helped me kind of reconnect with my cryptozoological roots which really you know cryptozoology is really about zoology and i think that's the word that people always leave out of it um, so, you know, things like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, uh, Thunderbirds, Black Panthers, many of our cryptids, I think, have a basis in reality and are basically just undiscovered, very rare and elusive species. And, uh, so that's kind of how I, how I look at cryptozoology. Now, I know there's kind of been a, uh, a metamorphosis uh, in recent years where big cryptozoology has kind of been embraced by a lot of people that come from the paranormal uh, field and, and they, they have more of an interest in Bigfoot as, a, as an interdimensional creature and, and sort of really far out cryptids like Mothman and the Dover Demon, the Jersey Devil and Dogman and things like that. So, you know, it's the field has kind of expanded and evolved and grown into different areas, but... Uh, I, I still look at it from a very traditional standpoint in terms of, you know, what has a basis in zoology and um, 
how can we find and prove that some of these cryptids actually exist? Well, uh, you know, with some of the uh, submarines that are able to go so much more deeper. Now, you know, there, there are never before seen um, animals being mm-hmm. uh, seen towards the bottom, or uh, you know, maybe like uh, uh, like the giant squid from uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's being confirmed. Um, well, oh, just interesting that uh, some of the technology is um, confirming or uh, just discovering some of these uh, creatures. Mm-hmm. You know, when you look at um, you know, the monkey, you know, the various monkeys at the San Diego Zoo, it, it, are you seeing? mannerisms that Patty displayed or something similar that you could work in say oh, hey you know they're you know just seeing uh, you know chimpanzee do something reminds me of how very possible you know, Patty is to being real um I mean, you certainly, observing any type of animal, you might elicit or observe certain types of behaviors that you could equate to, you know, but something like Bigfoot or Sasquatch. But if I could circle back, Mark, to just a point you were making sure. a minute ago about new animals being discovered, and I think that's a lot of thing. that's one thing that people, a lot of people don't realize. Just uh, a few days ago, I had a phone conversation with a, a a young biology teacher who discovered a new species of whale in 2017. And it wow. was kind of serendipitous because he was on an Alaskan isle, island called St. George, which is pretty remote, and he was there as a bird watcher and working uh, in different capacities. But he walked, he went down to the beach and saw this beached whale, and uh, he didn't, you know, he's not a marine biologist, so he didn't know what it was. Uh, but he called one in, and it turned out to be a brand new species of, of beaked whale. A beaked whale is called a zephyid. It's a, it's a, an elusive species, and this thing was 24 feet long. And uh, by hmm. by looking at it, that when the marine biologist showed up, they said this is a new species. <laughs> and so, you know, that's that's just a few years ago. That and you know, even recently, I think there have been some new whales discovered. So. You know, there are new things being found in the ocean all the time, of course. We would expect that since the oceans are very vast and deep. Uh, but there are large terrestrial animals that are still found, too. I mean, there was a, a new species of tapir, which is uh, related to a rhinoceros, and it's a large animal that was discovered in South America in 2013. Um, you know, the Komodo dragon, the largest lizard in the world, wasn't discovered until 1912. Uh, an animal called the Vuquang ox or saula was discovered in uh, Vietnam in 1992. So I mean, there, there, you know, occasionally there are large animals that are still being found in the jungles and, and kind of remote areas of our planet. So I think that bodes very well. I think the closest 
uh, parallel you would have to Bigfoot or Sasquatch is something called the Billy Ape. And uh, it turns out that this Billy Ape is actually a kind of a subspecies, a unique subspecies of chimpanzee that was discovered in Africa in the 1990s. Uh, but, you know, a very large animal. So, so new animal species are still being discovered at a pretty good clip. And I think that gives us a lot of hope in the field of cryptozoology that that maybe Bigfoot or, or Sasquatch or the Loch Ness monster could be next. Um, but I think I think you know any, and I'm sorry to kind of uh, go go down that rabbit hole. But any serious Bigfoot researcher, I would encourage you, of course, to study the the great apes, the, the hominids, uh, whether they're gorillas, chimps, orangutans, or even humans, because I think Bigfoot or Sasquatch falls into that same family of all the great apes. And so I think you could definitely uh, learn things potentially about Bigfoot by studying other great apes like gorillas, chimps, orangutans, and even humans, because a lot of times we lose sight of that, but we're kind of in that same family too. And uh, Bigfoot seems to be somewhere in the middle. (laughs) We don't really know, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, ape-like characteristics, human-like, it's kind of a mosaic of, of, of both. And your the essential guide to Bigfoot um, does have a a lot of research observations from Lauren Coleman, really nice guy, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, very well respected. Cryptozoologist as well, uh, uh, Jeff Meldrum. Uh, you know, I've met both of them. I'm you know, very Im- impressed with uh, both of their uh, knowledge. But uh, you know, Jeff uh, has uh, saw his presentation at a local convention, and you know, he makes some really good uh, cases about. Uh, Bigfoot is a, a real species, and mm-hmm. uh, so you, know, you you are citing uh, very well respected uh, researchers in this field as well. So and I, I inter- well documented book. Thanks, and I interviewed a lot of guys. So basically, you know, because there's no one true expert in this field, but there, there is a con- there can be a consensus opinion or some consensus opinions regarding different aspects of the phenomenon. Even though we're we're all basically when it boils down to is we're all speculating. But while I was writing the book, I incorporated my own 45 years of research experience. But I did interview Lauren Coleman and Dr. Jeff Meldrum and Cliff Berrickman and Adam Davis and Daniel Perez. John Kirk, uh, even some skeptics like Ben Radford, Lyle Blackburn, and Nick Redford, who are both good friends of mine. So I interviewed a lot of people that have been studying this mystery for decades and uh, tried to put together a composite opinion when it comes to forming different theories about you know the different aspects of the, of the mystery. Okay, and um, yeah. Um... Yeah, just and just to have a brief segue into your, you know, just give the audience a, a sample of one of your other writings is your uh, 
uh, Flying Humanoids book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this concept, you know, you know uh, can go back to uh, one of the image, uh, the Birdman image from the Lascaux Cave, and you know, get some of the uh, human bird hybrids from you know the e- Egyptian and Sumerian artwork. Yeah, these flying humanoid type creatures have been depicted for thousands of years and the birdman of La- the Lascaux cave in France goes back nearly 20,000 years uh, I think it's closer to 12 but still a long time oh, okay. during, the, during the Pleistocene epoch yeah so so mothman is the most famous flying humanoid and flying humanoids by the way I don't consider to be true cryptids because they don't fit into the paradigm of zoology like we were talking about but they are weird creatures that have been reported as you said Dating back thousands of years, there are traditions of things like Mothman in different cultures around the world and all over the world. So I think that that was kind of my basis for the, that book, uh, Encounters with Flying Humanoids, was to talk about the Mothman, the most famous case, but also to point out that it is a widespread uh, mystery that, that dates back uh, millennia. Yeah, and you know, the harpies and, you know, like Icarus, you know, that's going back to the you know, Greek mythology. Uh, people have been interested in these kind of topics for thousands of years. Yeah, they have. They, whatever these things are, we don't know, but whatever Mothman is and these other flying humanoids, they've been reported, uh, well, they've been depicted for thousands of years and they're still being reported today. I've interviewed dozens of eyewitnesses who, who who swear they've had encounters with these flying humanoids. And uh, the, the, these people are very traumatized and uh, by these experiences, and they're, they, they're very credible when you, when you look them in the eyes. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, a fascinating mystery, fascinating and terrifying mystery, really. <laughs> yeah, and so, some of the people you are interviewing are uh, chiefs and... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, they they don't spook easily, and you know, they, they are upstanding people of the community that would not be um, using hyperbole or feeling that they need to get attention. No, you know, I, I wouldn't think so. So. Uh... Who knows? I mean, it's, it's a great mystery, and uh, if people are interested in that one, they can definitely find uh, copies of Encounters with Flying Humanoids uh, on, on my Amazon page. It's still available. So. Yeah. Yeah. No. You know, um, I know you, you, you have a lot of uh, you know, things going on, you know, business and writing and filming uh uh, upcoming uh, episodes of, of you know, shows. So, you know, we just want to keep uh, the, this to an hour discussion. I, I, I really wanted to, uh, you know, Barbara, and I just want to thank you for 
being our guest tonight, and you're always welcome to uh, come back and do, you know, the Loch Ness Monster book when that uh, becomes available. And uh, can can you tell our listeners how they could get a hold of you, you know, learn more about you? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on. Uh, It was great talking to both of you. Always enjoy it, and I'd love to come back and talk about my next book, uh, The Essential Guide to the Loch Ness Monster. Um, Please do. uh, As you said at the top of the show, people can find more information about me on uh, my website, which is kengerhard.com. I'm also on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel where I post brief videos that talk about my research. Um, and I also have an Amazon author page if people want to check out you know, my different books. So, Cool. Okay. Well, uh, Ken, I just wanted to thank you again. And, you know, um, just a terrific show. I, it was nice talking with you again. And we're, we're going to have to do it when... Uh, your Loch Ness monster book comes out. I'm fascinated by that topic as well. All so right, hey, that sounds just good. Keep, I'd love to do that. Yeah, yeah. Just, just keep me posted. We'll we'll work you into the schedule. I just want to thank you again. Thanks, Barbara, for producing the show, and uh, we'll see everyone tomorrow night with uh, Barbara and Mary Joyce. <laughs>